hope you can appreciate the irony in the title of the sermon this morning, Who is the Man? I kind of like that title. Uh, it's actually the title that I've given to the series as a whole, to the book of Judges, Who is the Man? I think it's an appropriate title for the book as a whole. kind of has a nice contemporary cultural connection, Who the Man? Uh, is out there in culture. And that, that phrase is actually found in Judges chapter 10, the last verse of Judges chapter 10. Who is the man? Who, who will God provide to deliver us, to care for us, to save us? It's a good summary of Judges. I actually think it's a good summary of the Old Testament as a whole. But today, I made it the title because it is ironic to have it as the title of this sermon. For in the face, and that's what we've got in this chapter, in the face of overwhelming odds, 900 iron chariots against a people who were barely armed, verse 8 of chapter 5, was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel. 900 iron chariots against a people barely armed. God will use two women and a tent peg as the central and critical elements in providing deliverance for the people. All right, perhaps a, a fictional aid will help us as we think through this story. One can imagine, at least I can imagine it as I was preparing for this day, Deborah, or perhaps even JL, making an Eowyn-like statement at the critical moment, as the mallet is raised, as the tent spike is ready to be driven into Sisera's head, I am no man. Or to put it in book form, no living man I am. And if you don't know where that comes from, you can ask me later. We have two heroines in our passage today. If we can avoid the temptation to load this passage with contemporary feminist ideology, whether that be secular or Christianized, if we can avoid that temptation, it will allow us the opportunity to value, to learn from, to appreciate these women and what they did in this story. The uniqueness, especially of Deborah, secondarily of JL, the uniqueness that they have is not to be found in some idea that they are blazing a new trail for women in leadership in God's economy of Israel or of the church. The very fact that they are not the norm, nor are they seeking to establish a new normal, is what makes this story what it is. It stands out because it's not the norm. And we're to understand it in exactly that way. Judges is structured with this, this common cycle that we've seen now. We saw it described in chapters 2 and 3. We saw it worked out in the three judges that we looked at last week in the, the end of Judges chapter 3. And now we're going to begin the next cycle of this. There are things which are always familiar to it, 
but in the midst of the familiar cycle, then what happens is these anomalies are thrown into it. So you think you've got the pattern, and then an anomaly is thrown into it that shakes us up and causes us to look at it again. A left-handed assassin, a, 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 an ox goad master, able to kill 600 Philistines with it. To show us these two things. One, God is the deliverer. God is the deliverer. He is the savior. And two, he uses all kinds of people. He uses people of every shape and of every size and of every sex to accomplish the purposes that he has. And so today, here's our outline. War is upon you. The warriors and singing warriors. We're going to begin with this. War is upon you. Enemies keep popping up in the book of Judges. Cycle after cycle, the people, we always start off with this phrase, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan. Enemies keep popping up, even when you think they're dead. Even when you think they're gone, they've had it, they're finished, there's no way they can rise up again, they're up again. Even when you think, surely this is the end, there, there, there can't be anyone left. In Joshua chapter 11, this particular group of Canaanites, who are particularly powerful with their chariots of iron, who are notably cruel, they oppress the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. In Joshua chapter 11, it seems like this same group of people are wiped out, destroyed. Like that's the end of them. And here they are back again like some horror movie. They just keep coming back. I'm sure Israel would like to have been done with war. We would all like to be done with war. It's ugly, it's awful, and yet it persists. And since I've already uh, quoted Lord of the Rings, now you don't need to ask me, recall Theoden's resistance when Aragorn calls him to arms or is trying to rally him, trying to rally him and his troops. Theoden says, Theoden doesn't say daddy. Theoden says, I will not risk open war. And Aragorn's response to him is, open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. And so it is, whether we happen to have lived as an Old Testament saint in the time of Judges, or at some other time in history, or as New Testament saints. Open war is upon us. That is true. Now, as a New Testament saint, when we use that kind of language about warfare, we might want to say to ourselves, but, but wait, hasn't Christ already achieved the victory? Isn't the warfare over now? Hasn't, hasn't Jesus accomplished that? Isn't he the deliverer who has defeated 
all of his and our enemies. Yes, indeed he is victorious, but at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. If you'll recall uh, the book of Revelation, at one point in the book of Revelation, the beast looks like he has received a mortal wound. It looks like there's going to be no recovery for this beast. And yet, up again, the beast rises. And he wreaks havoc because he knows his time is short. Now, one might think, listen, if you know your time is short, why wreak havoc? If you know your time is short, why don't you just give up? But the beast, the enemies of God, Knowing the time is short, seek to wreak havoc while they can. Your adversary prowls about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But something in us, and we understand that something in us says, I'd rather not fight. I would rather be at peace with all men. Isn't that what Paul said to us? Be at peace with all men insofar as it depends on you. Yea and amen. I would rather not fight. I would rather be at peace with all men. But not yet. The beginnings of it are there, but the reality is that war is upon us as it was upon Israel, whether we would risk it or not. Whether you sit here and say, I'm a peace lover, war is upon you. And so we turn then to consider the warriors. Now, we'll talk about the human component of this in just a minute, but it would be inappropriate for us not to begin where this text begins and where the emphasis of this text lies, to remind ourselves of our author's emphasis on the fact that the battle belongs to the Lord. Who delivers Israel? The Lord delivers Israel. It was the Lord who had punished Israel. It was the Lord to whom they cried. The Lord who spoke through Deborah. The Lord who said, I will give them into your hand. The Lord who goes out before them. The Lord who routs the enemy. And I didn't go into this when we were in the song. What the song makes clear is that one of the things that God did in order to rout them, in order to incapacitate these 900 chariots of iron, is to cause a flood on the river Kishon. And what happens when there's a flood and you've got iron chariots? Well, they get stuck. They get stuck and they're now useless. And that's one of the ways that the Lord routs the Canaanites. The Lord is the ultimate subject of the blessing that is found in the song of chapter 5. God saves. Jesus saves. Salvation is of the Lord. Okay, we say that over and over so that we don't lose, because I'm going to go right now to the people who are part of this story, but so that we don't lose that as the hope and the reality and the foundation of whatever else we're going to say now as we look at the various people who are here. God gets the victory and he uses people to do it. 
He uses his people acting in faith at particular times in particular places to accomplish his will to bring the victory in any particular situation. Deborah is certainly one of, if not the most, upstanding person in this book. It's hard to read the book of Judges and go, hey, that's somebody I'd like to emulate. Be like that person. Well, if there's one person who might stand that, it's Deborah. It's Deborah who is here. She is a prophetess. Now, this is unusual. It's unexpected. It's supposed to be. We're supposed to be reading along going, wait a minute, what, what just happened here? How am I now reading this? It's unusual and it's unexpected, but just so we realize this, it's not unheard of. It's not unheard of. So Deborah is a prophetess. Miriam, Moses' sister, Aaron's sister, was a prophetess as well. We could look at other examples in the Old Testament, but coming all the way to the New Testament, Anna, who was at the temple praising God at the time where Jesus was presented at the temple. Anna is also a prophetess. So it's unusual, it's unexpected, but it's not unheard of for a woman to be a prophetess. Deborah dispenses wisdom from the Lord, thus functioning more like a wise judge than any of the other judges that we see in this book. Now, perhaps she's doing this because the men won't. Perhaps this is a statement about the state of the priesthood, the state of the Levites in explaining the law of God at this time in Israel. That, I say perhaps because we actually don't know. We don't, we don't know any more information than we have in the story that is before us today. So perhaps that's the reason. It's hard to say. The verse that comes to my mind when I read about Deborah is Proverbs 31, 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom. Now, the woman in Proverbs 31 is not a prophetess, per se. It's simply to say that she speaks wisely. Deborah has a unique position as a prophetess. But what she does when she opens her mouth, and I think this is a, is a thing that makes it accessible to us, is she opens her mouth with wisdom. And I look at that and go, as an example for women, for men, that is a good thing to open your mouth with wisdom and to pursue that. And as a result, what happens when you open your mouth with wisdom? People gravitate towards you. They, they want to hear that. People want to receive that wisdom, in particular from Deborah, the wisdom of the Lord as a prophetess. They gather to her. They come to her seeking her input, seeking resolution of things that are confusing or things that are matters of dispute. They look for her help. They see that the Lord is with her. And thus, the reason that Barak wants her to go with him. She's valuable. She speaks on behalf of the Lord. She's not just a talisman that can kind of be brought along, a good luck charm that you can bring along for the sake of the battle. 
but she's bringing the word of the Lord to the people, and you want her to be with you when you're going in to battle. She's godly, she's wise, she's courageous, and she is, in every respect, admirable. Barak is somewhat less clear. Having received the word from Deborah, we hear this request, and I've just referenced this request, and we kind of wonder, how do you process his request, his demand? I'm not going to go into battle unless you come. If you come, I'll go. How do we process that? How do we understand that? Because the reality is many would-be prophets, many would-be saviors or deliverers of God's people struggle when God calls them. Think to themselves, who am I to do this? And you can just kind of go through the list when they hear something from God, whether it's Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Jeremiah, Mary. You struggle and you say, really, I'm the one who's supposed to do this? Isn't there someone else? Isn't there somebody other than me? Well, anyway, Barak struggles with it as well. And yet Deborah replies with a yes, but it's a yes that has another aspect to it, which seems to confirm that his statement is not just is not just a, it's good to have God with me when we go up, but something less than that. It's a lack of courage. It's a lack of faith. And thus she responds with this idea that the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. It seems to be an indication, a confirmation of his weakness, of his reluctance at that particular moment in time. Uh, but, but, lest we consign Barak too quickly to the ash heap of kind of worthless fellows who don't know what they're doing and are weak and helpless kinds of men, we have to be careful with that because the fact of the matter is God uses this man. God uses this man in the story to wield the weapons, to lead the army, to go into battle and to defeat this cruel and wicked army that any of us would have been afraid to go up against. I'm going up with nine, uh, against 900 chariots with guys who are hardly got a weapon in their hands. Any of us would be afraid of that. And yet God uses Barak to do that. God blesses him with victory. And 1 Samuel, in that book, when it looks back on this incident, it doesn't recollect Deborah or Jael. It recollects Barak, and it calls him the deliverer, which is to say the savior, the word that we've seen used multiple times for the judge, the one who is delivering the people here at this particular time. And not only is that the case in 1 Samuel, it's also the case in Hebrews as well. Probably picking up from 1 Samuel, the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, you'll recall, is recounting the people of faith 
and he's not afraid to mention women. He's just mentioned, prior to what I'm about to say, he's mentioned Sarah, and he's mentioned Rahab. But when he comes to this particular point in time, he mentions Barak. Barak. And his kingdom conquering justice, enforcing faith. So, perhaps he had doubts. Perhaps he had weakness. He nevertheless acted in faith. And sometimes that's actually encouraging for us, right? To know that God actually used this guy. Of course he used Deborah. She's presented to us as completely faithful and wise and brave and courageous. He used Deborah. But the fact that God could use a man who was timid and weak, wavering a little bit to accomplish his purposes, maybe that is also encouraging for us. Now, if Barak is a little bit complicated, and he is, Deborah, clear, Barak, a little bit more complicated, Jael is even more so. Her husband is a covenantal ally of Jabin, allied with Sisera, and she acts with treachery, with deception, with violence, in violation to the covenant treaty that exists. And at the exact same time, she is doing God's will. Whether she realizes it or not. And she's blessed of tent-dwelling women. She is the most blessed. We sing of her. Israel sang of the act of Jael. Now, I'd like to think of it this way. Hopefully, this is a Rahab-like act of conversion and allegiance. We might not have every, well, we certainly don't. We don't have every detail of this story. Perhaps word had kind of filtered through of what was taking place and who Israel was. And perhaps this, like Rahab, is a, is a suggestion that, uh-uh, that's my God. Those are my people now, and I'm going to follow after them. That's the way I would like to read this story, but we can't, we can't say that for 100% because this is all we have. So I'd like to read it that way. But her placement in the story, and not just her placement in the story, but her placement geographically is what reveals to us so clearly the hand of God at work in circumstances that we might seem otherwise irrelevant. So you're reading along in this story, and Deborah has just made her statement about how a woman is going to get the human glory for what takes place in this battle. Barak won't get that human glory. And all we can think of at this point, I mean, if you're, if you're reading the story and all we can think of at this point is, well, that means Deborah, right? If Deborah's going, and if Deborah's the one who sent him and she's the prophetess, all we can think is that that means Deborah's gonna get the, story, get the glory for what takes place when Sisera and then Jabin are defeated. And then we read this seemingly randomly placed verse in verse 11. 
Now Haber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak at Zananim, which is near Kadesh. And you're kind of like, all right, thank you for that interlude of geography of people who are irrelevant to the story. Because so far we don't know, we have no idea why that verse is there. It's just a little side note about uh, this move that took place of this particular family that took place. Jay, <laughs> either tell us to evacuate or whatever. If, if we need to evacuate, come back in and tell us. But think about it this way. God has taken this family and moved them to this particular place at exactly the right time. If we can borrow from last week, this is a family who now is exactly the right family, exactly the right person, in exactly the right place, at exactly the right time. God has put them there. She hasn't been planning. If, if you kind of take, for example, Joshua chapter 3, I mean Joshua, Judges chapter 3, and the story that we saw last week with Ehud. If we take Ehud, one of the things we noted with Ehud is that he's got a pretty significant scheme and plan worked out for how he is going to assassinate the enemy. Well, in this case, Jael doesn't have any of that worked out. You know, Ehud had sharpened and created the dagger and he had put the dagger on his side and he knew exactly how this was going to work out. In this situation, at this particular time, None of that exists. She hadn't been planning. Providence had allowed this opportunity, how about this if you'll forgive me, to fall right in her lap. Right in her lap. Providence puts an opportunity in front of her and with no dagger having been prepared, but lo and behold, there she is, there the tent is, there he is weary, there's the mallet, there's the spike, and she makes the most of the opportunity that is set before her. It shows us the hand of God. Ralph Davis writes it like this. The God of the Bible still injects those marvelous bits of providential minutia into the lives of his people. In what a wonderful manner God prepares for our deliverance. Many Christians can see this as they look back and reflect on God's ways with them. There has been some little piece of divine trivia, something that seemed at the time wholly unrelated to anything, something that even escaped human notice because it was so minuscule, and yet it turned out to be the vehicle of God's saving help. I bet it has taken place in your life. Something providential that you thought was completely unrelated to anything else, and it turned out to be the key thing for you. Lauren's not here. I should have asked her before I, I told this story. I went on my first Young Life trip as a non-Christian when I was 15 years old, not because I was seeking the Lord, but because I was interested in some girl who was on the trip. And that's what God uses. Some stupid little, not sorry, that's not stupid. Um, 
some little interest in a girl took me to a Young Life trip, which God said, you know what, I have other plans. I have other plans than what you think you're planning right now. And God uses those things in our life. Now, while these are the three main characters that we've got here, of course, they are not the entire army of the Lord. There are many warriors whose names are not known to us here. And this song becomes crucial then for us to understand how do we take this? How do we apply this? The song kind of takes the whole and says, okay, this is what I want you to remember coming out of this and to apply to our lives. And in this song, Deborah praises the willingness of the Israelite warriors, the willingness of the leaders, the willingness of the people. But while praising them, she also laments and curses those who would not participate. So in chapter excuse me, in chapter five, verses 15, 16, among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of the heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling? Oh, that's an appropriate time. To hear the whistling for the flocks among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? And later, Morose is cursed. It's cursed of the angel of the Lord because they sat there and they did not join in. They did not participate in the warfare of Israel against the Canaanites. God wants and God uses every type and every sort of person. Women and men and leaders and soldiers, and that's exactly what Tolkien was trying to capture in his book. That's why hobbits aren't giants. If hobbits were giants, then what is great about the story would be lost because you'd expect it. And God takes character after character and says, you're not going to expect this, and I'm going to use this person to accomplish my will. What God wants is willing warriors. People who are willing to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. People who are willing to serve. People who will stand in the gap. People who will see a need, however simple and however small the, might, the need might be, and say, that's me. I'm willing. I'll take that up. People who will love people who will give, people who will show others hospitality, people who will make a meal, people who will drive someone somewhere. Willing warriors in the hand of God. That is what he wants. And listen to this. We might be concerned about warfare, about the possibility of loss. Something could happen to us, something could happen to those we love, something could happen to our house, our possessions. Our time could be lost. Our efforts could be fruitless. We worry about loss. 
But anything we lose in this battle is made gain in Christ. Multiplied gain in Christ. In other words, you can't lose. You can lose your life and you can't lose. You can be sawn in two and you can't lose. You can be frustrated because your plans didn't work out and you can't lose. In Christ's economy. And then when that is the case, we come to our last, and I'll make it a very brief point. We come to singing warriors. Warriors who are singing in this life, in the midst of the battle, and warriors who sing in the life to come when the battle is done. Deborah and Barak sing. They sing in the first place to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Secondly, they sing to celebrate and to remember what God has done and how the people were part of it. I'm going to just keep mentioning this throughout this year. We're going to celebrate this year. We don't know exactly how, but we're going to have a celebration of 20 years of the existence of the church. It's good for the people of God to celebrate the work of God. They sang their song so that the lessons could be passed along. Songs instruct, songs challenge generations to come. A story that is recounted well, particularly a story that is recounted well and then put into song, sticks with us. It distills the lessons, it purifies the lessons, and it instructs the generations yet to come. And finally, they sing because singing is food for the soul. In this world, our souls get fearful. I don't think this was easy for Deborah. I'm sure her heart skipped a little bit when she heard what Barak said, and then she went, I'll go. I'll go. But it took courage, and I'm sure there was fear that was part of it. What about you? You might be fearful of some step that the Lord is calling you to take in ministry, wondering if it'll work out, wondering if anybody will join you in a particular step in ministry. My favorite phrase in this entire passage, and there are several really great phrases, my favorite phrase is actually on the front of your bulletin. It comes from verse 21 of chapter 5. When Deborah turns inward in a Davidic-like Psalm 42 kind of way, and she says, march on my soul with might. The soul is tempted to break down. It's tempted to shy back. You look down at the soul and say, or sing, march on my soul with might. You're tempted to cower. Don't do it. Wise words. Wise words from Deborah. May I take them to heart. May you Take them to heart. Our God reigns. Take heart, says our Lord. I've overcome the world. Who is the man? Jesus Christ is the man.
and we are his spirit-filled, spirit-gifted warriors. If God is for us, who can be against us? Lord, opportunities abound. Abound in this world. Abound amongst our families. Abound in our communities. Abound at work. Abound with those who are hurting, oppressed, crying out. The opportunities are there. Make us willing warriors. To be sure, our battle is different than that which was waged then. Our weapons are different, but help us to battle well so that when the songs are sung, we might be amongst the tribes who are mentioned as having appropriately gone out to battle and not sat back and pondered. Give us courage. Jesus, help us to follow your lead. And we pray in your name. Amen.